Welcome back to the Play On Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Stavros. Today we sit down with Robin Rodriguez. Robin's directing this season's production of The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Robin directed a wonderful production of King John for us in 2013, and we are thrilled to have her back. Robin has worked with many other theaters, including Berkeley Repertory Theater, the Guthrie Theater, Shakespeare Theater, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the Barbican in London, the Birmingham Rep, that's Birmingham, UK, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Intamin Theater, the Rubicon Theater, Missouri Rep, PCA Solvang Theater Fest, we're about halfway through, the La Jolla Playhouse, Portland Center Stage, and the Denver Center Theater Company. She also represented the Oregon Shakespeare Festival at the 43rd Festival de Jeux de Théâtre in Sarlat, France. Robin has been a guest lecturer at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of California in Irvine. She's taught at Oregon Shakespeare Festival's school visit program and summer seminar for high school juniors. Robin was also adjunct faculty member at Southern Oregon University. Welcome to the Play On Podcast. My name is Josh Stavros. I'm excited to be here today with uh, Robin Rodriguez, the director of Two Gentlemen of Verona. We're so glad to have you here and are looking forward to an exciting conversation about one of our fall uh, productions. I'm thrilled to be here. So starting uh, sort of personally for you, one of the things we like to hear about, especially with our guest artists, is what got you involved in the arts initially? What brought you to this place where you are now? Uh, I fell in love with the theater as a, as a young child. Um, my parents took me to lots of plays growing up um, and I believe it was the summer between uh, my eighth grade year and my first year of high school uh, when the family wasn't going to go on a, um, a summer vacation. And so I had done a couple of plays in junior high and my mother had said, well, we're not going on vacation, but maybe you can audition for some plays that are being done at the local junior college. Um, and so I did, not ever taking into account that I was 13 going on 14 and auditioning with a bunch of people who were in college. <laughs> um, but I did, and I got a part. And from what I can recall, for the rest of my years at home, um, my parents uh, and sadly my sister's summer vacations were always going to be around. <laughs> uh, they were made around whatever play I was doing locally. So I, I started working or you know being in plays as a kid. And um, when I left for college, I majored in theater, and I've been doing theater professionally, you know, pretty much ever since. Awesome, acting, directing, acting, primarily acting. Uh, my whole passion for the theater and, and, and desire to be in the theater was about being an actress. It was never about television or film. Uh -huh. It was always about being in plays. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. ACT in San Francisco was, you know, the thing that I aspired to, the idea of being a, a member of a resident company. Um, and it's all I wanted. And it wasn't until about 2005, so that was 10 years ago, uh -huh. that it occurred to me that while I was in the business of trying to be a better and better actor, that most of the artistic directors that I had cut my teeth on were, you know, retiring from the theater. 
Um, and while it had never occurred to me to lead, as I was getting older, it seemed like creatively I had hit a bit of a glass ceiling and needed to expand. And that's when I started to poke around to see if someone might give me a chance to do some directing work. And fortunately for me, uh, a young guy that I met in 1991 uh, who had asked me if I thought it, he should go to grad school, um, and I said yes. Uh, that young person was David Ivers, <laughs> and he contacted me in 2011 to say that, um, you know, hi, and do you still think about directing, and hey, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I might be in a position to help you with that. So King John in 2013 was the first play I had ever directed professionally. Wow. Um, I had, you know, done stuff at co in, in colleges and in classrooms, uh, scene work, um, and the occasional full-length play, um, but King John was the first professional uh, show I ever directed. I'm sure you get this all the time in relation to these kind of questions, but how do you feel like your work as an actress informs your approach as a director? Well, I know how I like to work as an actress. <laughs> I know what I hope the process will be like. Um, and, um, you know, as I've gotten older, there are a lot of directors who have, have come to the theater as directors, mm -hmm. that, that they never worked in the theater um, as a stage manager or as an actor or as a designer. Um, and, and consequently, sometimes there's process orientation that uh, is that they don't know about. They don't know that that the actor has something to bring to the table, like the designer has something to bring to the table. And and um, I'm really interested in working with people who are really collaborative when I'm working as an actor. So um, as a director, my hope is that I would be one of the collaborative directors. I like, like I said, I I was a member of a resident company for a really, really long time. I like playing on a team. Mm -hmm. I don't like to be, you know, the cheese that stands alone. I, I, I'm only as good as the best idea in the room, and sometimes that idea is not mine. And, and that's the thing I aspire to as a director, is to not only, you know, be able to direct productions of plays that, that, are, that are worth people's time mm -hmm. and their money, but, um, but also experiences in the theater that are um, hopefully um, singular and exciting and fun and and gosh if we're lucky maybe a little transcendent who knows here's hoping well I think one of the things that I think people find interesting that they don't necessarily think of along the lines of not understanding that sort of process orientation is how much work an actor does before they ever arrive in the rehearsal room to begin rehearsing a play or whatever and I think that also extends to the directing sphere. Talk to us a little bit about your process uh, in terms of a preparation. You, you know that you're going to work on this show. You're, you're either pitching your notes or whatever, but what, how, where do you, what do you do to sort of get ready to direct or to direct the show? What's all that work that no one ever sees? Well, I, I read a lot. Um, as an actor, I read a lot. I, I really want to read about... Um, the person who wrote the play and why they wrote this play, when they wrote this play, um, when you're working with Shakespeare, it's why, why, why is this play different than some of the other plays in the canon? Where did it come in in the canon in terms of his mm -hmm. life? 
life's journey and his uh, his creative uh, growth as an artist. Um, so there's all that. But I, I like knowing about other productions. Um, fortunately for Shakespeare plays, I've, I've done a lot of Shakespeare. Um, and the Shakespeare that I haven't done, I've probably seen. Mm -hmm. So I can come to the table with at least that kind of knowledge, the experience of having um, seen something before, uh, if if not only working about uh, on it, so um, that's important to me. Um, and and then, fortunately, I'm married to a scenic designer who has got an incredible library. Um, I watch a lot of movies. I, I read a lot of books. I look at a lot of artists' work uh -huh. um, to see well where what's going to excite me. Uh, what what world of the play could is best to tell this story in? I mean, it's got to come from a passionate idea. These Shakespeare plays, we do them over and over and over and over again, and I, it became part of my experience of doing them anymore was like, well, what is the passionate reason for this yeah. group of people to get into a room and, and hammer out this story yet again? I, I, I mean, it, it, Working in the theater, is, for me, was never about just having a job, sure. um, because I would have done something else that would have been a hell of a lot more lucrative. <laughs> so so uh, for me, it was always going to be about who, who's on the team and what are we saying this yeah. why, time? Why here? Why now? Why exactly. this show? All of that. Exactly. That immediate. Yeah. Absolutely. Immediate. So then let's jump right in. Let's take that to Two Gentlemen of Rona, which you're directing for us as we speak. Uh, why this show? Why now? Why for you, Robin Rodriguez? Well, as a fledgling director, first of all, you get the phone call and they don't ask you, what would you like to do? <laughs> they say, well, we would like to offer you this. Um, but fortunately for me, I have seen Two Gents many, many times. I have never worked on the play. Um, I have always liked it. It was always my hope to be in a production of it when I was younger, um, but that never happened. Um, and I had the good fortune uh, just last summer of seeing a production of the play that was really outside the box. Um, and I had a real opinion about the work that I had seen, and it engendered some really, really passionate discussion. Um, so when I got the call in the fall to do Two Gents, I was thrilled because I had just had this experience of seeing it recently and had lots of questions about it and had lots of opinions about how it might be done uh -huh. successfully. Um, and I'm not that arrogant. I, I cannot emphasize enough how it might be done successfully. I hope our production will be successful. Anyway, so, um, so I was pretty excited about it. And, and then the other thing that really excited me about it is that um, it takes place in primarily in Verona and in, and in Milan or Milano, and um, I have spent a lot of time in northern Italy. I know the Veneto region pretty well. I certainly have spent a lot of time in in Milan because a lot of my uh, husband's relatives uh, are living there. It's 90 minutes from the village that my husband's family originates from. Wow! You see, so so I I personally uh, was really passionate about. Um, doing a full-up Italian version of mm -hmm. this play, to be very, very clear that this, this is a group of people that, that are from a certain region in Italy, and, um, 
and what's the difference between Verona and Milan? And there's a lot that's different about Verona and Milan even today. So um, that really excited me. And the other thing that excited me, and again, it comes from, from researching. Um, uh, Marjorie Garber's book, Shakespeare After All, is a real Bible for me. And she was the one that finally, mm, uh, it was reading her essay on T. Gents where it hit me that the quartet of lovers in Two Gents are unlike any of the lovers in the romantic comedies in that they are definitively adolescent. Let's talk more about that. What, in what, so you described them, or she described them rather, as definitively adolescent. What does that mean? How does that set the lovers, uh, Julia, Sylvia, Proteus, and Valentine, apart from other Shakespeare lovers? Even an, the immediate quartet comes to mind, Hermia, Helena, Demetrius, and Lysander. They make, uh, well, that, that's a good comparison, the, the Midsummer lovers. Although the situation, I think, for the, the uh, two gents, because we don't have the supernatural world in, uh -huh. involved, is a big difference. Uh, oh, if only Oberon and Titania yeah. were around to uh, absolve them of some of the horrible mistakes they make. They are impossible. They are impulsive. Um, and their impulses lead them to make choices that are not necessarily good. And in Proteus's case, they border on the criminal. And um, there's a big controversy at the end of the play about whether or not forgiveness for Proteus is really attainable. Um, Especially whether... without that sort of supernatural deus ex machina that occurs in other plays. Exactly. So in my mind, it thought, I thought, well, maybe forgiveness isn't really possible, but maybe compassion is. And compassion perhaps is possible if we can wrap our minds around the simple fact that young people, as they try to develop from being pupas into full-fledged adults, make some bad choices. And is that not a universal aspect of the human condition? And is that not worthy of, if not our forgiveness, of our, of our compassionate uh, impulse? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's different in that regard. Um, it's a very open-ended ending as far as I'm concerned. We don't know if Proteus will get better. We hope so. Um, but uh, Valentine is as guilty uh, in his way of making impulsive, ridiculous uh, choices. The girls are impossible. What Julia does uh, prior to leaving Verona, the, her treatment of Lucetta, is it, it, any teenage mother has had that conversation, our father has had that conversation with a daughter or a son. Um, you cannot win with these young people. The adults cannot win. Um, and so um, it's in that spirit that I think Two Gents stands apart from any of the other plays. It, see, it feels like, and see, having seen it before and reading it again, partly in preparation for this, that it seems like as people discuss the play or discuss it as a production, we forget that. We forget that they're so young and adolescent, and we forget that real young people make these kind of flip-floppy or foolish mistakes. Why do you think, why do you think we expect more of these lovers than we do of I don't think we expect more of these lovers. I think we expect more from Shakespeare. I, I think Two Gents is thorny. 
-hmm. It's not a ha-ha comedy. It's a, it's a bittersweet comedy. It, it is... It is not. It is not the same as 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 the others in that regard. And so I think it's messy. Mm -hmm. And um, okay, we can we can we can say okay, it was one of the early plays, and he was unformed, and he got better as he rolled along. But you see, if if someone's going to contract you to do a production of Two Gentlemen of Verona, and you say yes, the last thing you want to read is this is a lesser play, and why bother doing yeah. it? Which is uh, what a lot of critics write. So, so it is incumbent upon us, uh, those of us who do it, um, to find a really passionate reason for telling the story. And for me, that was the hook, that these are young, 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 young people. And, um, and young people do dumb things. Ex exactly. And, and are they not worth time and effort? Because hopefully they will, they will grow into somebody remarkable. You mentioned that this is one of Shakespeare's earlier plays. You think of him as a younger man writing it, and maybe this is this is in the realm of conjecture. But you think of you know we write what we know, we write where we are, and I I can't help as I read it to see a twenty-something Shakespeare thinking about his own theoretical youth, and that as imperfect as it may be, that even then there's sort of a there's something sort of romantic about him just writing about life as he knows it, theoretically. Well, the, the, the wonderful thing about it is, is, is the, the more you study it and the deeper one goes, um, I, I mean, like you, I, I, I find there are passages in the play that I think are absolutely brilliant. I think they're perfect. I think he, he really had his finger on the pulse of something unique and remarkable about what it is to grow up as a human being, and, and um, for that reason alone, I think the play is really worthwhile. Oh, me too. Uh, and and we've, we, you mentioned it briefly as well, that there's shades of things that happen, characters, situations, tropes, for lack of a better word, that appear in this play start to appear in others of Shakespeare's. And we can sort of look at this as a seeding ground for ideas. What do you... Um, did you... Did you Feel that as you prepared this way, that you saw flashes of Julia, or excuse me, flashes of Portia, or flashes of, of Viola in Julia, or the, the lovers, or other things. Sure. I mean, having never really been a student of the play until now, um, as a young actor, I just went, oh, I just want to play all the pants parts, you know? So, <laughs> so, so Julia is in this tradition of, of women who dress up like men uh, in order to... Um, make her way in the world, uh, survive in the world. Uh, um, and, and yet what makes Julia unique uh, in, in reference to certainly Rosalind or Imogen mm -hmm. or Viola uh, or Portia. Um, and, and the difference for me is that <laughs> some of these other women are, are, are dressing as men in order to save their lives. Their lives are at stake. Rosalind goes to the forest of Arden as Ganymede because she has to, and she's going to stay Ganymede as long as she has to in order to be safe. Julia dresses up as Sebastian because she wants to go find her boyfriend, and that's <laughs> the difference. That's the difference. What does she expect when she gets there? Is he just going to see through the disguise and, 
and 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 see her 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 beauty and 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 what she was willing to do for her because she loved him is he going to be happy is her father not going to follow her there and drag her back home to verona by the hair i mean we will never know but her reasons for going there are absolutely not well thought out at <laughs> all. And once she gets there and discovers something that she hadn't hoped to discover, then her need to really commit to this disguise as Sebastian, it becomes something else. I don't think she goes to Verona in the hope. Yes, she doesn't want to, you know, meet lascivious strangers on her way. Sure. She talks about that. She she has thoughts about the loss of her honor and reputation, but she does it anyway. And um, her reasons for doing it are just not very smart. It speaks to what we were talking about earlier. Talk about... This production particularly, we've talked a little bit about the play and you've given us a great look at uh, your process. Tell us about your concept for this particular production and how all of this youthful immaturity and sort of impulsiveness has translated into a, our production. Well, one of the things that really strikes me uh, about uh, the plays where women dress up as men is that the, the pants have to matter. The pants, the choice to wear pants has to matter. And um, if we set the play in, um, in an era where women wearing pants is an everyday occurrence, I don't think the stakes of taking on the disguise mm -hmm. are high enough. Um, because we're working in uh, the Randall and not um, the Adams uh, for this show this season, um, we have a little more flexibility in terms of time period um, that perhaps we don't have to do the play uh, in, in Elizabethan times, for example. Um, and I fully embraced that. Um, and so I thought anything post, anything moving into the era of Rosie the Riveter was going to mm -hmm. be too late for me. Yeah. You know, that, that, that we really had to really think about um, the pants being a huge choice. And so what got me excited was the idea of doing the play exactly in the year 1920. Because um, Italy is like other nations in Europe. Um, it is, it is uh, two years after the end of the Great War. Um, everybody's sighing uh, a bit of a breath of relief. Uh, prosperity, hopefully, will come back. Um, but because the war is over and because people are relieved, um, it is an era of great change. The hemlines of women's skirts begin to rise. Uh, women are able to get college degrees as opposed to certificates of completion. There are places in the world where women finally can vote. And for these young women, for Julia and for Sylvia, there is a huge um, flexibility in how they get to live their lives that was unprecedented, say, for their mothers. Also, the difference between Verona, which is a walled city, not unsophisticated, but metaphorically 
uh, protected. Um, it's, it's very different from the industrial hub of a nation that is Millen. And so when Proteus and Valentine traveled to Millen, in addition to the world being broken open to them in this unbelievable way, they see a girl that looks like no other girl they've ever seen because Sylvia is the daughter of a duke and has access to uh, opportunity, to fashion that uh, the, the people in Verona just quite don't have yet. Um, so there's a big difference between the forward placement of, of Sylvia uh, based on her place in the world um, than what is usual back at home and, and the way Julia uh, goes forward in the world. So, so I think there's a huge difference. It's, the jazz age is happening. Um, it is the age of anxiety. Um, there are things that are happening in the world that are unprecedented, and yet nobody knows that 15 years later we'll be back in another world war. Mussolini and Hitler are in the shadows, but they are nowhere near power. Um, so we have this period of, 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 while not calm, but a more innocent age than, say, the mid-20s or the late-20s, moving into the 30s. Um, I was inspired by that. I was inspired by what was happening in Italy at that time. And... Uh, that's where we decided to set the production. Thinking about the relate, coming back a little bit to the relationships, I think the idea of setting, I think, well, the phrase "age of anxiety" is, I mean, that's perfect. That sort of hopeful anticipation without any, it's just a great description. Coming back to the relationships a little bit, one of the questions I get every time I read or think about from Sylvia and Julia's perspective, particularly, is, and you sort of look at the whole nature of courtly love and the elevation of women sort of in the medieval times going forward into the Renaissance. Are these men worth having? I don't know. I don't know either. I, you know, I don't know. Was, was your boyfriend in high school worth marrying? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we hope, we hope so. Um, there's reason to believe that there's, that Valentine by being banished has, become a more mature person. The way he conducts himself in that last scene of the last act is different than the way we've seen him conduct himself, um, certainly uh, earlier in his tutelage at the, at the Duke's court. So, Do you think it's the company of... What do you think it's that matures him? Well, I, I think... If, if, assuming that he does mature. Yeah, assuming that he does mature, I think the fact that he's banished is huge. I think... I think the Duke is very articulate when he says, you have, you have overstepped my, my hospitality, uh, my, my grace, my generosity. You, you have acted dishonorably. And is at, it is as an, a, a dishonorable person that he is essentially sent packing. And I think that hits him really hard. In addition to that, he loves this girl. He's devastated. He's devastated by it. Um, I think he knows that he has completely blown it 
and and brought dishonor on his family and um and then he has to survive in the woods with some people who have to survive in the woods these outlaws aren't very good outlaws um they are disenfranchised members of that society and i think he learns something about survival from them um it's quick it's a comedy we don't really know uh all of the layers uh that but he's had a lot of time to think um between the time he gets to the forest and the time he he discovers some things that happen in the woods so um so i'd like to think that that valentine is changing for the better i like that last big question uh one of the one of the many things i've read postulated that uh Valentine and Sylvia are simply supporting characters. That the real protagonist, the real heroine, and for you know, using the word literally, protagonist or hero of the show are Julia and Proteus. What what's your response to that idea that Julia and Proteus are the real central protagonists of the story? Well, you know, there's a is Proteus a protagonist? I mean, Proteus on many levels could be the play's villain. Um, He's a complicated hero at best, um, certainly a flawed one. Absolutely. Um, and Valentine, while um, while flawed in his own way, um, he's an honorable friend. Yeah. He is loyal, as is Sylvia, as is Julia. So I think that Proteus and Julia and Sylvia and Valentine are on parallel journeys. And for my money, the play is only as strong as the quartet. Um, to just isolate it to the characters, I think, of Julia and Proteus is um, to put all, all of the eggs in those two baskets. Uh, for me, it complicates it uh, because I think there's a whole other layer to the story that is is incredibly beautiful. Valentine has some of the most beautiful passages of Shakespeare in the canon. And it is his constant questioning of what is happening and what isn't happening and what do I think is happening in, in juxtaposition to what I know is happening. I mean, he is so uh, open in a way that Proteus is not. Yeah. And the differences between these two young friends are, I think, key to our ability to emotionally um, experience the play. So I don't think it's just the two. I think it's the four. Awesome. So speaking to somebody who is on the fence, thinking about seeing they've never seen this show before and they're on their way, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a sales pitch, but what would you tell someone who's not quite sure about seeing Two Gentlemen of Verona? What would you tell them? Well, I'd say if you'd like to come to an, a really entertaining the, uh, evening of theater with um, some beautiful uh, love stories and uh, some really, let's face it, two of the best clowns and all of Shakespeare are in Two Gentlemen of Verona. We haven't even talked about uh, Speed and Lance, let alone Crab the Dog. So I, I think this is, there's something for everybody in this play, for young and old alike, and I think it is a delightful evening uh, or afternoon in the theater, and, and run, don't walk, to see 
our 1920s version of The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Robin Rodriguez, thank you very much for joining us on the Play On podcast today. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you've been to the festival's website, bard.org, recently, you've probably noticed things are a little bit different. You can now locate the podcast on our website by clicking the media heading at the top of our website at bard.org.